0: I'm Chris Fellingham, and this is The Archers. Like The Archers, but instead of the garden fence being left open at the end of the episode, we want to leave you excited about what social science ventures can do. If you want to leave feedback, email me at chris.fellingham at innovation.ox.ac.uk. I hope you look forward to listening. Warren Hatch, welcome. And um, maybe the first question is, could you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. And uh, thanks thanks for having me. I've been been looking forward to this. Uh, So yeah, Warren Hatch, and I'm the CEO of Good Judgment, Inc., and that's a commercial successor to the research project that was led by Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers uh, that was uh, fantastically successful at finding ways of improving on the wisdom of the crowd. And what we've done is we've converted in the research findings into a commercial service to provide training to organizations who wanna bring these processes inside and also the super forecasters. These are the really accurate forecasters that came out of the research and continue to be found on Good Judgment Open where uh, organizations can outsource their questions and we provide the probability estimates. Before this though, I was in finance, that was my day job. And uh, I was just making spreadsheets and reading research and came across Phil Tetlock's uh, request for test subjects for this new research project. So that's how I got involved was as a test subject, came up through the ranks, became a super <laughs> forecaster and they invited me to come on and uh, help build the business.
0: Uh, that's brilliant. But then my next question is, what exactly is a super forecaster?
1: Good question. Because it was <laughs> not part of the research design at all either. They took a very experimental approach when they were looking at things. So there were different university-based teams and they had different ideas on how to you know, improve wisdom of the crowd approaches. And the good judgment team just sort of said, well, let's try everything. What combinations of things might deliver better results, which things might not. And in the first year while they were doing that, they observed that there was a small cohort of forecasters, test subjects who consistently did better And that prompted them to pose a new research question. And that's what academics do, uh, see something and and try and collect data. Would if they put those forecasters on smaller elite teams, would they get better or would they revert to the mean? Uh, And it was a testable proposition. And the answer ended up being that they continued to get better uh, and, and quite significantly so. So as a group, they're individuals who are very good at forecast accuracy. They share certain characteristics They gave us lots of personality tests and then saw what sorts of things correlate with being good at forecasting, being good at pattern recognition is one, um, being actively open-minded, you know, challenging your views about the world is another, um, and being what they call cognitively reflective. So when you see a problem, you don't necessarily go for the first most obvious answer you'll pause and challenge yourself. And that's another very important characteristic. So as a group from all over the world, uh, all kinds of different degrees, they're all specialists in one domain or another, sometimes multiple. But the one thing that they all share in common at this point is being experts at forecasting. They're just very good at it.
0: That's brilliant. I'm gonna ask a short follow-up question to that. Um, which we'll move on to in a bigger topic later. But just so everyone understands how a super forecaster works. Let's say we roll back to January 2020, and there's some very early signs that, you know, there's a a disease outbreak that's potentially going to be big. What is a super forecaster thinking in terms of how are they going to forecast whether this will occur or not and how big it is? What kind of questions are going through their mind and how do they think about it to differentiate them from, typical wisdom of the crowd or, or any other expert?
1: I can tell you exactly what happened, because it was uh, certainly in early January when we saw the news flow like everybody else, that this is something, something's going on. So we began posing questions on Good Judgment Open, our public site, quite early on. And then we also posted a smaller set of questions to the super forecasters. And at that time, the big question was, how bad is this going to get? What sort of scale should we even be thinking about for this? Is it a log scale, geometric? What is it? So that was our very first set of questions that we posed in January. What order of magnitude are we looking for? And this was at a time when the CDC director was saying, no big deal. And a lot of the experts were dismissing that this could become quite significant. The super forecasters, as a group, were saying in January, that global caseloads would be going into six figures by March. And sure enough, that is what occurred. And so that's a real question that super forecasters were tackling at that very time.
0: Well, let's, let's dive into that a bit because that's, that's a really interesting factor, right? We had the CDC and other expert bodies who specialize very much in disease control. And they were saying one thing. And, of course, they may have had pressures on them and certain incentives around how they communicated. But why do you think super forecasters were coming to what turned out to be a much more accurate conclusion in a way that maybe the traditional experts or at least some of them were not?
1: Well, I think there are a few things. In super forecasting really it's a process. I right? mean, it's a great it's a great brand name, but what it r- really is underneath it all is a process. How do you go about quantifying hunches? Subjective explanations about an uncertain future? Rather than using language, you use numbers, probabilities. And I think that's one thing that helps um, this process stand apart from what a lot of experts do, where they will continue to use language to make their forecasts about uncertain events. And they don't quantify the same way we do. By quantify,
0: you mean like a percentage probability, 30% chance of happening, something like that?
1: Exactly, exactly. So we will use numbers. And we'll say, yep. So, like, there's a 30 percent. Well, actually, it's more like you know, 70 percent probability that caseloads will go into six digits. And then we'll update that whenever we see new information, or if you have new information that I hadn't thought about, I go, oh, that's a really good point, and and I'll and I'll bring it in. And using probabilities, numbers just does a lot of good things. It lets you quantify it, so you know what it is. It also lets us compare. So when you say a number and I say a number, we know exactly what it is instead of maybe happen or could happen Hmm. or quite precise. And we're also then able to compare it to different topics because we're using the same language to understand these uncertain events. And when these events occur, we can align our probability estimates with the frequency with which these events occur. These are all things that experts who use language are missing out on and that's something I hope they would do more of. There's another part too, is that experts typically by definition have a model of how the world works. They'll have data even that feeds into their models that typically assumes an equilibrium in the relationship in the data, right? And so they've got a view of the way the world works, they assume an equilibrium, and the first tendency to new information that might come along is to dismiss it because it's not part of the model. If you are a skilled generalist, as super forecasters are, you are not encumbered by a fixed model of the world in the same way. You can, what Kahneman says, take an outside view to a problem instead of the very much inside view that experts can provide. And by doing that, new information comes in, you can bring it in without any problem you can change your view because you don't have uh, you're not tied to a particular model and by doing it in a group you can do it quite quickly so i think those are some of the key elements that allow this kind of a process to uh, to to do quite
0: well i mean that's a fascinating point because in the uk the defining moment early on in the pandemic was when neil ferguson published his model of the potential mortality of covid and obviously Neil Ferguson is an epidemiologist and it was an epidemiological model that had had you know, lots of trial and testing with different disease outbreaks. But this super forecasting is fundamentally not a typical scientific model as we'd understand it for disease outbreak. So then the question I would have is what do you think we can learn from the way the super forecasting worked and how can we integrate that into public health response going forward?
1: Well, I think, I think one advantage that this kind of an approach can have over traditional models is that we get to borrow from those traditional models. We benefit from whatever signal they're providing and all other models that are out there. And so we're able to take advantage of everything that's out there and uh, bring it into the process. By definition, if you have a model of the world, that's, that's kind of it. And uh, and so when things are in flux, it's much more difficult for static models to keep up. Now, that's not to say they don't have a role, they absolutely do. And, but the Boolean very much is in addition to, not instead of. This is a way to add to the dialogue, to bring uh, speed and to bring in other information that might otherwise be neglected. And here's another, I think, really valuable part of it is that especially when an environment in flux where there's a lot of information and a lot of it contradictory, how can you distill it? How can, can you cut through the noise? And the answer is you have a process where you can, as a team, as a group, go and sift through all the information and identify the information that is not going to be very helpful for what you're trying to understand, the noise, and focus on the information that is. The signal, And I think this is something that with humans, you can do much faster than, uh, than with static models at this point in time, especially when it comes to secondary and, and third effects, right? Because we're talking about humans and models might have some good predictive accuracy on connecting this event to that outcome. But when there's a lot of individual human decisions going on It becomes very difficult for models to process second and third and fourth order effects. Like if you impose uh, uh, restrictions on people's movement, right? How are they gonna react? A simple model might say, ah, well, if we restrict movement, our model says this, Mm -hmm. but there are humans involved. How much will follow those restrictions and in which direction? Maybe they'll be even uh, better behaved as it were, than the models are expected. And this is something humans can do that models, by definition, will often miss.
0: I mean, this seems quite pertinent that at a time when we're talking about artificial intelligence constantly rising in ousting humans, we found a particular weakness of models. So that's, that's a good story. Do you think there are other ways that potentially Um, scientists building these models, because you talked about the science model as being an input into the super forecasting. Can it go in reverse? Is there ways that like epidemiologists could basically take, if not direct super forecast judgments, at least some of the processes and insights from super forecasters to help them do their scientific work better?
1: Oh, for sure. And we've seen some of that, both the work that we've done and others as well. This is something very much in the air uh, uh, to do that and it can come in the form of the data too. We can generate data and that can feed back into the models. And I think that is gonna be a really fascinating area to be exploring more, not just in, in this topic but other topics too, where you have hybrids of the best of machines and the best of humans having multiple uh, 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 connection points as, uh, as, as we try and understand complex events. But I think there's also a place to be had for the scientists to adopt some of these best practices in the way they think about things, because it's still very much often, uh, you know, a, a one-person uh, endeavor, right, uh, or a small group where they all have the same shared perspective on something. Mm. and what is you might have a team, a research team, but often it's not a research team of say a dozen different individuals bringing their different perspectives to bear, but um, a a, a team of, of, of clones. So we're basically kind of thinking the same way, going after things the same way and having an opening for different perspectives to come in when they think about the models, I think that might be interesting for, uh, to be exploring, but then also to think about the problems they should be asking, right? Because a lot of time in formal modeling, the only things that get into the models are the things that can be uh, readily measured and quantified. right? And so there are a lot of omitted variables that get left out. How will people react to restrictions on their movement? Probably a model that will get restricted, a, a variable that would get restricted from a lot of models, so being able to surface those subjective variables and then quantify them is a second way that might, uh, might be helpful. And then a third way that I think might be really fascinating is coming up with the problems themselves, the hypotheses to be tested. So if you have a model of the world, it will generate a number of hypotheses, but maybe there are others that would be interesting to include that you're not capturing. So crowdsourcing within the scientific community, alternative hypotheses to be tested, uh, to see the strength of uh, the explanatory value of a particular model might be interesting as well. The questions as well as the forecast can be crowdsourced.
0: I mean, I very much like the idea that social sciences contribution to science would also be to demonstrate that to some extent uh, their own knowledge is socially constructed. That would that would very much be a triumph for social science, I think. Um, my next question, though, is so we talked a bit about um, predicting sort of how the pandemic would play out. How else was super forecasting uh, and good judgment Inc. involved during the pandemic? What other areas did it get into?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. So we talked about how the first was just what order of magnitude are we looking at? Right. And then. We started to get that and refine what those questions were. Uh, we focused on you know, caseloads and fatalities uh, by region and by and, and and globally as well. And that was a really important part to understand too. Um, and then, but right alongside that is the timing of when is a vaccine going to be available. And we very carefully. Uh, wrote the question. So that is when would enough doses be available for what it to be in wide circulation? Mm -hmm. We did not pose the question, will people take it? Because that's a different question. At that point, we just wanted to know what the capability was, as we think about uh, when the, uh, when the endpoint might be. Uh, And, and on that, that became a, a pretty widely followed set of questions. Uh, that showed that the timing was going to be sooner than a lot of people and organizations were expecting. But then in addition to that is, okay, well, now maybe there's a recovery coming. What is it going to look like? And so when will airports go back to full capacity? When will restrictions on people's movement begin to be lifted? When will cruise ships go back to doing what they do? Um, How much of of working from home is gonna stick around? Uh, What are office vacancy rates going to be? These follow on questions uh, became a big part of the portfolio as the second half of last year progressed and as a core part of the part portfolio now. And we still have some central COVID questions though, of course. Because it is still a major issue in quite a few countries around the world. So we're following that. But even in, in countries and regions where the vaccination rates are, are, are moving along, is when do we get to what a herd immunity, right? Mm. And this is what we're really looking at too. And we'll be um, uh, we just launched a new question a couple of weeks ago asking about when will uh, vaccinations reach five billion globally? And this is a rough proxy for herd immunity. And and again, it's not just something that you can extrapolate with a model at all, because you can see, well, here's the take-up rates and here's the production. It doesn't work that way because the herd is a herd of humans. And they will do things in different ways in our kind of when you write a question, it's almost make, it is making a forecast as well. So when we're thinking about that question is basically, uh, when might we see vaccinations move on to an S curve, where it's a slow pickup, a big acceleration, and then begins to taper off? Are, are we reaching that point as part of what we're trying to get at with that question? And a lot of these, by the way, uh, are publicly available on our website too. So anyone can go and check them out.
0: Well, that brings me neatly onto my next question. So we know that good judgment had some of its origins with the intelligence community in the US helping to kind of predict geopolitical events. And I think the UK government has started doing that within a European context and other countries have. So we know that at least at a government level, they're starting to experiment with this. But I think for anyone that followed the pandemic through the media, It is not obvious that the media is looking to good judgment and the super forecasters predictions as a way of understanding what's going on and then, you know, integrating that into their work as the media to be asking the right questions of government and other people. Do you see that changing? Do you think the pandemic has elevated the role of of super forecasters and they can sort of be part now of the way that we kind of get information in society and accountability and understanding?
1: Oh, for sure. We've definitely seen that over the course of the last year. It's in media, it's in the private sector, it's in government where, uh, and again, at its core, what are we doing? We are quantifying subjective hunches. Um, And that's really at the core. And how much more valuable is it to have something that you can measure and share and update than just a talking head opinion? Uh, But the thing is, if you're in media, the talking head opinion is a lot more exciting, a lot more engaging to hear them beam off on this and that and say, you know, there are three ways to solve this problem, one, two, three, and it's all very definitive and sounds bold, but when you peel it back, there's just not much there and they are noise generators. And some in the media, well, it's always been an open secret, but some in the media are seeing how these other approaches can add to the value of the reporting they're doing and add to the public discourse. And again, in addition to what is all ready out there, we're definitely seeing more of that. And it's not just us either. I mean, it's, it's great that we're able to have a, a prominent role, but there are other organizations doing this sort of work and providing these sorts of probabilistic estimates about uncertain events.
0: Well, I guess um, five thirty eight was one of the most famous early ones to try and bring numbers to, to elections, right, and force the media to kind of address the realities of statistics and probability. Moving on a little bit then to kind of more Good Judgment, Inc. as an organization, I guess there's an open question, and you've obviously kind of answered it already, but how did a social science theory turn into this massive organization predicting important information about the pandemic and all these other geopolitical events. Usually social science theories stay in books and research papers.
1: It's been quite an adventure and I'll say that I wish when we started it up there was an organization such as yours to help <laughs> us make it happen. Um, now in this case, uh, so it was a research project, it came out of a US intelligence research initiative, and they have a mandate of doing experimental research with the expectation that a lot of it won't lead anywhere. A lot of it will fail. But in cases where there are robust results, they're very supportive of commercializing those findings when possible, in part as a way to show that the use of taxpayer dollars is good and valid. If the real world, as it were, uh, finds value in the research findings, then that's, that, that can be helpful there too. So they're supportive in that sense. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other support and we, get a, we got a lot of feedback. This was really important because the research project, the research finding was, okay, here is a process. It will make better forecasts. Right? and it's this big complex machine. Not everyone needs or wants a big complex machine. So as we started putting a company together, our first challenge uh, was to think about, well, what are the smaller processes that can be usefully isolated that would have value on their own so that individuals and organizations could treat it more as a smorgasbord than as a, as a as a as a fixed menu, and so that was the first thing we did. And then the next thing was to experiment, right? Which of these things that we know we can do actually are useful out in the real world? And finding that product market fit was quite a quite a bit of work. And what we found, and a lot and a lot of these things were things that I'm sure were quite well known, and we were just rediscovering things that uh, we we might have. Uh, uh, been advised about by organizations such as yours but that was one of them was how do you break it down okay break it down then how do we go and find product market fit and i would do and what were we really doing at that time through that experimenting was really very much a consulting kind of engagement because it was a case by case by case this client would like this that client would like that so let's see what we can figure out Um, but we're now at a point where um, we will we'll continue to do that work, that very important experimental work, to, especially as new research findings keep coming out. So we want to continue to find ways to apply that. But the core of the business, now that we think we've figured a lot of these things out, uh, is in a place where it is much more scalable. And I think this is one of the important aspects for a successful business development is to move out of kind of a consulting role into something where you can uh, build much more of a successful business on it, where in short, you have one forecast question, but there are a lot of organizations that are interested in it. And how do you figure that out? And how do you how do you uh, productize it? How do you deliver it? How do you get feedback? And here's the thing is that in short, we've got two main business lines. And in both cases, we ended up applying our own process. Number one is workshop training and presentation. So we do a lot of that, a lot online, we'll be doing more, but a lot of it's in-person or virtual like this. And at the end of every workshop, we ask two questions, what worked and what would make it better, right? And that gives us feedback from everyone who's been there in near real time were then able to act on it and the magic began to happen when things that were in the, what would make it better column started moving into, this is what was good column. Right? Mm. So we were crowdsourcing the product design in a sense. And we're doing the same thing now with our with the super forecaster work, where we have we've got a public dashboard and and that we make available, but we've also got subscription dashboards too, where we are now having the same kind of feedback coming from users. What topics would interest you? So we're crowdsourcing um, the, the topics for our own work.
0: Oh well, that's absolutely brilliant, and I appreciate the meta level there by uh, applying your own processes to yourself. <laughs> When you first started going out kind of speaking to potential users and customers was it difficult to communicate what you're doing because it's it is a very in a way quite a social sciencey thing it's a particular way of making forecasts um was it hard for them to get their head around how this could be useful for them initially or did they get it quite quickly
1: oh hard so one of the things you still struggle with is what's your elevator speech right Mm. so if you're stuck in a lift and you got like ten floors to tell what you do and how you do it. What do you say? And that's it's it's really tough because it it's it's a it's a it's a new kind of way of thinking about things, and not everyone is as familiar with it. And how do you really distill it down to connect it to a problem that people might have? And our founding CEO came up with a very nice way of thinking about. uh, an elevator speech. Terry Murray, she was the project manager for the Judgment Project as well. And to describe our our forecasting service, she connects it to the weather, right? Because everyone can understand the weather and the use of probabilities there. And so what we're basically offering is, it's like the weather channel for global risk.
0: And that's quite a nice snappy line as well.
1: Then you can also adjust the conversation too, because some people will immediately get it and you can you know, get really nerdy, others less so. And so you can connect it more directly to, you know, well, if there's you know, a, a risk of conflict in the South China Sea where we can help you quantify and understand what that risk is, just like we, the Weather Channel can help you quantify and understand the risk to your picnic next weekend.
0: Okay, well, I think that's brilliant. So one thing you alluded to in one of your earlier answers is that there was a continued engagement with the research community. And can you talk us through a little bit about some of the kind of research projects that you've now got ongoing?
1: Well, we, um, we do some of our own internally, for sure. And we're looking to strengthen those bonds because there's a lot of research out in the real world, to be sure. And of course, Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellor's uh, especially are very active in research and they're still but they've been pushing the frontiers right of forecasting even farther out and those new findings are you know, really exciting and this is a way to be a conveyor belt transmission belt between what they are finding in the research world that we can then apply in the commercial world uh, and report back to them to the degree it's useful that here are the areas that we' Uh, organizations in the public and private nonprofit sectors are finding similar experiences. And here are some of the things that they're kind of interested in. Uh, But then that this connectivity also goes to a much broader community, because this is uh, something that a lot of researchers are involved in, um, including, uh, well, the the, the new book from Daniel Kahneman and his co-authors called Noise is kind of part of the same sort of uh, area out on the frontier and this idea of noise especially is something that Phil Tetlock and his colleagues uh, both at the University of Pennsylvania and elsewhere have uh, uh, adapted into a model that they use to cr- kind of understand what are the underlying strategies of the process that we're talking about too. So if you are super forecasting and that's a process There are steps you can make, the data shows, that lead to better outcomes, but what's really going on underneath? And this is where it's exciting to be connected to uh, uh, ongoing research and apply it in the commercial world. The model that they have in mind, they call bias information noise or a bin model. And in short, the elevator speech is information, is is, um, data, facts that correlate with what you're trying to understand, the forecast you're trying to make. That's what you want to identify and zero in on. And you want to filter out the information that doesn't correlate with what you're trying to understand, the noise, the talking heads who blather on and on and on. And yet at the end of it all, whatever they've said is occupying precious brain space, but not helping you understand what you need to uh, to forecast. So you want to filter out the noise. And then there, so that's one kind of error. And the other is the bias that we're more familiar with. Uh, that's kind of tough tough to deal with sometimes, but you can be aware of it and mitigate its effects. People are overconfident and you, there are things you can do to, uh, to mitigate that. So these are findings out in the research world that we're able to work with organizations to uh, turn into ways to improve decision-making um, for everyday decisions from finance to security to energy to pretty much anything. You wanna improve your signal, you wanna reduce the error. And here's a way to do it.
0: So one thing that you mentioned a bit earlier was that now obviously, Good Judgment was looking at kind of the post-pandemic world and asking some of the big questions about things like the economic recovery. There's, I think, a a joke in economics that economists predict something like 11 of the next seven recessions or something like that. Um, How is kind of Good Judgment getting involved in these kinds of big, quite important social science areas such as predicting the economy uh, and work, you know, are they working with economists in some of this field to kind of test out which ones are good at predictions and why?
1: Well, that's a great timely question. By the way, that sandbite comes from the 1960s have predicted something like 11 of the past six recessions. The ratio holds. uh, (laughs) uh, So they're over predicting recessions even, even to this day. And I think part of it is what we were talking about before, too, is that the way economists, analysts, it's still very much state-of-the-art 1950s, right, where you will have a view, and you've got your view, and then we average them out. And that's the consensus forecast. And what we do in this process, that's just where we start. That's our, that's where, where they end is where we start, right? So you'll have a view, I'll have a view. Now we're going to compare our reasoning. And maybe you'll convince me on this, I'll convince you on that. And we'll have a whole team all doing that and we'll be making updates, right? So we're, this is 21st century technology. And there's another element too, is that we are gonna have a shared understanding of what we're trying to forecast. Often with the consensus professional economists, they're not even forecasting the same thing. Here's an example is the Wall Street Journal for years has done a survey of professional economists asking them, uh, "When will? what's the probability there'll be a recession in the next 12 months? And this is a framework very familiar to a rolling basis, um, but they never define recession. So you might have one understanding, I might have another understanding. So to the degree that we are forecasting on different things, we are building in noise into the project at the outset. So by addressing that and by using 21st century tools, I'm pretty confident we can go head to head against professional economists and do well. And so in fact, we're gearing up to launch exactly those kinds of questions. What's the probability of a recession in the next 12, 24 months and and so forth. And you see that kind of approach to being taking root in, in other areas where you use crowdsourcing and you you update and make it live. And uh, these are very basic, simple things that I hope professional economists will decide is something worth trying as well.
0: Are we gonna see uh, Paul Krugman versus Larry Summers on uh, the inflation of the stimulus bill?
1: Oh, oh, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up um, because one of the really nice things about having this kind of a discourse is that you can bring different perspectives to bear. So we were talking about before, you know, like uh, researchers coming up with hypotheses to be tested about their model and getting other perspectives on things to test. This is exactly the same sort of thing we can do on contentious public issues of the day. And so uh, we, we can ask Larry Summers and we are asking Larry Summers to pose a number of questions that he thinks would be indicative of an overheating economy. And we could then go do the same with Paul Krugman. And then we have a set of testable propositions that both sides or all sides can agree are going to be meaningful additions to the debate. And then as they resolve, may tell us something useful about the relative merits of those different worldviews. And you can have it play out on a forecasting platform where anyone can come and, and join the debate And instead of having talking heads yell at each other, we now have them and the public at large engaged in a fruitful discussion um, where we all agree on what we're trying to discuss and we all agree on what the outcomes are because they will resolve one way or another. It's called, uh, the notion is, uh, is adversarial collaboration. That's something again coming from the brilliant Daniel Kahneman that has also been something that uh, Phil Tetlock has encouraged. And we've done some of this ourselves to engage on contentious policy issues in a collaborative yet adversarial environment.
0: I mean, it seems quite profound to me that good judgment could both generate the research, which could challenge a lot of existing social science knowledge, as well as generate a process by which better social science knowledge can be generated.
1: It certainly is the right impulse to the degree we're able to do so and contribute to better process. That's, that's what we really like to do. And to make those sorts of things successful, of course, is very much, well, it's a team effort.
0: Warren Hatch, thank you very much for the interview. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Ark Us. Thank you to Joelle for helping to produce this podcast. And we've got plenty more in the pipeline. So come and listen.